This episode is brought to you by Loading Bar. Based in three locations, Stoke Newington and Peckham in London and Brighton on the South Coast, Loading offers video game aficionados somewhere to drink, relax and play. Visitors can expect a welcoming space full of free-to-play games, the latest consoles, fresh ground coffee, signature cocktails and video game-themed live events. Visit loading.bar for opening times and more information. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is the American creator of one of 2022's funniest games. In Trombone Champ, you play as a trombonist and must blast your way through a set list of classical pieces, national anthems and traditional songs in a brilliant and riotously silly reinterpretation of Guitar Hero. After a journalist for PC Gamer posted a video of himself ruining Beethoven's Fifth Symphony in the game last year, Trombone Champ became a viral sensation, propelling my guest and his wife collaborator into the spotlight. 
Colleen Wheeler of the International Trombone Association told The Guardian newspaper, it is abundantly clear that this is the finest video game ever created. (laughs) Riding high on that success, my guest and his wife recently made a web game to promote Gabrielle Zevin's smash hit novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I don't know why there's not more comedy in games, he once said, because games can be so funny. Welcome, Dan Vaquito. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Hey, yeah, it's, uh, it's lovely to be. I've really, really got a lot of enjoyment out of your games. No, I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thanks. I mean, that's. I mean, it sounds basic, but at the end of the day, like it's all about just enjoyment. You know, that's kind of like the goal. It's just making sure people have fun. It's instantly funny, and I think the reason that that tweet it was like a little short video of um, uh, Beethoven's Fifth, and and this this journalist playing along, and the sort of notes. Uh, it, I guess it's quite hard to get a very accurate note. So the notes slide on the trombone up and down and slightly, and it's immediately really really funny. You know, how soon in the process of making the prototype and all that stuff did you realize that you were you were onto something? I think it was kind of clear from very early on. Like uh, as soon as I had like that really early working prototype, which I posted on Twitter a while ago. I don't, I don't remember exactly where the concept came from, but I had this concept for a musical trombone game where you could just kind of like freely slide, and then the notes would come at you like way too fast, and it would be. And I was just kind of imagining the, like yeah. a cacophony of a music game where you're not really supposed to be able to play it well. You know, so the first thing I did was make this prototype in Unity and pretty much like as soon as I had something that was working, I was like, okay, this is pretty funny. This could work. That's kind of what made me decide to build it into a full game because I felt like the concept worked right away. Yeah. I wasn't sure what the final, final product would look like, but I was pretty confident that it would yield funny results. Yeah, right. The PC Gamer tweet was kind of like the make it or break it thing. I think that that got a ridiculous number of likes shortly after the launch. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, how many days after the launch did that happen? I don't think it was long at all. I think it was like the day after launch, actually. I mean, I I never expected the game to really take off um, to like a large degree at all because we've we've released a bunch of small web games before, like indie games and stuff, and a lot of them have gotten some press coverage. And you know, like we we had some fans for those too, but they were all like cult classics, you know, kind of. I, you know, classics is actually way too big of a word, but they were cult games. Um, and I mean, this game is it's like a trombone game. So it's like a trombone music game where you're supposed to play badly. I, I was thinking like, you know, how mm. big can the audience be? Although I was, again, I was confident it was funny, but I thought that maybe people will just share clips and laugh at the clips versus actually like making mm. the game itself popular, mm. you know? And ha- how soon after that that tweet did you realize, oh, this is different to like the things I've made before? Uh, it was pretty obvious really fast. Like, the moment we hit publish on Steam immediately like did a lot better than we thought it would. I had extremely... Uh, like what, could, what should I say? Like realistic sales goals in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, what were you expecting to sell? I was thinking. Uh, I mean, okay. Also, when I was making the game, it was all it was all part time stuff. Like I was working a full time nine to five and working on the game like just nights and weekends and stuff, which is very tiring and slow. So I always was kind of like aspiring to like, work on games full time or be able to work on games full time. So as part of like the mental calculus there, I was thinking like if Trombone Champ sold like fifty thousand dollars worth of sales like over a full year like 12 months you know i might start to run the numbers and see like how long you know i could milk savings and then that to 
try it full time. Then I was like, you know, but if it makes like a hundred thousand dollars in the course of a year, then it's obviously like something I should really consider, you know. And I don't want to get too specific into numbers, but like we we blew past fifty thousand pretty damn fast. Yeah. <laughs> so like, and, uh, and again, those were numbers I was expecting from like you know a year's worth of sales. Especially, like, I feel like the first month there was just like there was so much publicity and a lot of attention. Yeah. It's pretty overwhelming. So it was really immediate. And sorry, I'm, I'm answering this one question too long, but um, no, no, it's great. I, I mean, <laughs> it, it, did you quit your nine till five then? How how long did that take for you to hand in your notice? Yeah, yep. Yeah. I, I think maybe like it was seven or ten days after the <laughs> game went live that I did it. And it was kind of a necessity. Like, it's something I wanted to do. But at the same time, um, especially that first week, we were getting so many emails and like so many questions. It was just taking so much of my time, uh, you know? Right, right. F- full-time tech support you became for your own game. Yeah. I think one of the stupidest mistakes I made was thinking that when the game went live, I would have less to do. You know, I was like, okay, I'm working on the game a lot. But then once it's live, it's finished. And then I could just like take it easy. Yeah. But really like once it's actually in the hands of people, there's so much more work to do because yeah, you get that tech support, as you mentioned, there's just like a constant stream of things that you should add and should do to the game. And when I launched it too, it was like only on PC, it wasn't even on Mac at the time. So I was like, okay, now I have to start the work of putting another console. So there's just so much to do. So I, I really couldn't wait much longer to quit my full-time job just because I was I was going nuts. Yeah, yeah. What do, what was um that what was their reaction at your work when you said I made this trombone game and uh yeah, and now you I'm know, off. pleasantly nice actually. I think they were happy that it was a funny good story. Oh, that's good. you know surrounding me leaving because I was with that job for a while. Yeah. I was at that company for about fifteen years. What, oh, what were you doing? Can you say? Yeah, uh, web design for publishing, like in in New York. Okay, like a big mm. publishing. House. Okay, like book publishing. Yeah, book publishing. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, it's a pretty different world than games, but I think they, they liked it. I mean, a lot of people quit publishing and then they go to like Amazon, you know, or some other, can I swear? Well, on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, of course you can, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they go to Amazon or some other bullshit job. And yeah. It's always kind of heartbreaking when someone like, someone that you work with leaves the job and like just works for, for some company that you don't like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Particularly in the in the book industry, people don't like Amazon, do they? Yeah, definitely. I and mean, personally, I don't like Amazon because <laughs> they're pretty evil, but like, especially in publishing, it's like, ah, oh. like, you know, we had yeah. someone leave and go to Facebook and it was, you know, you say congratulations, but you're thinking it's like, oh man, <laughs> it's like Facebook, come on. So I think they were just happy that it was like a good story and that it's a, it's a funny story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I'd mentioned this game to like a bunch of my coworkers and my boss like years back, you know, because um, from start to finish, it took around like four years to finish. So I think like two years ago, I like, you know, shared the trailer, that first launch trailer. So people were aware that it existed, but they um, knew what you were up yeah, to. Yeah, to some degree, but I don't think they expected it to become, I don't think anyone expected it to become <laughs> popular. Because again, like when, when you describe it verbally, it's like, it's a trombone game. <laughs> people are like okay <laughs> that's that's a choice <laughs> amazing okay so the uh the the premise of the podcast is i'm asking you to pick the five video games you'd like to install in your perfect games machine and, and put out to the world market uh, to two people everywhere um can you tell us about about your first choice and uh, when you first played it and what was going on in your life at that time? sure i just want to say i really do like this prompt a lot like, it's, it's really nice to not talk about Trump on Jam for a while. <laughs> and now I get to talk about other games, which is awesome. Because <laughs> it's just about, like, all I do in my off hours is talk about games. So, with this prompt, I wasn't sure whether to go with, like, favorite games. I don't... I have a lot of difficulty, like, listing favorites. 
So I went kind of with like formative games, like really big ones from that like had a big impact me on me as I was growing up. The first one I just put down was Doom. leave a little break there so I could play some Doom music. <laughs> so I felt a little bad taking Doom because it's such like a big name, but this was definitely like an enormously formative game for me and my friends and stuff for like a lot of reasons. Um, so I, I grew up in a household and we always had a lot of computers like PCs. My dad was kind of like a computer enthusiast and even before you could even like do anything with computers, he was like buying them. It was kind of funny at the time because like, you know, they're super expensive and like hard to use and you'd set them up. But then it was really difficult to actually like make use of them, you know, or like, but Doom, I think, firstly, it really did kind of like represent a quantum leap and like what games I was playing on the PC looked and felt like. Mm, yeah. I remember a previous one before that was Wolfenstein 3D. I think Wolfenstein was the first game where we got like a new sound card. And so before we got the sound card and you play Wolfenstein, like it was all like beep, 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 like these little beeps and bips sounds. But then when we installed the sound card, it was like real audio, like people yelling German phrases and stuff. <laughs> and Doom kind of took that to the extreme because um, the music was just really fun and fast and like metal, which I yeah. kind of had not heard in games before. Like the sound effects are still incredible, actually. Like um, a lot of the sounds are amazing. And just like the graphics and gameplay had this kind of odd blend of like pixelization, but also realism. I think they did a really great job, like, nailing what you can do with that level of graphics. Yes. But I think the real reason this really stood out for me, though, is because um, this is when I got really into, like, level editing and stuff, which was a hobby of mine for a very long time. Yeah. Way back in the day, like, at the mall, there was a store called, like, Software Etc. And I think the first time I played Doom was not even, like, the full game. I remember Software Etc. sold some weird little box that contained, like, the Doom demo, and then a whole bunch of, like, yeah. editing utilities that let you, like, change the graphics and make levels and change the sound effects and stuff and basically, like, mod the game. Yeah. So I bought this, and then a few of my friends bought this, too. And um, I think we're probably in, like, fifth and sixth grades or so, so I guess, like, <laughs> 10 and 11 years old. And oh, wow. And trying to learn this stuff, and I felt like... This is almost like a game in itself, just trying to learn how to make Doom levels. Because right. first of all, you had to like do everything from the DOS prompt. And the level editor is not very intuitive. Like in order to make a, a square room, you had to place like four vertices, like the dots are on the edge of the room. And then you had to click them clockwise. You actually had to click them in the right order. And then like push a keystroke, which would turn the dots into lines. And if you didn't click them in the right order, like the walls would be facing outwards. You'd be looking at the backside of the walls, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Mm. You couldn't even see the level in 3D until you actually like saved it out and built it and then ran Doom with the command line to load the level. So all you had was this like top-down blueprint of this level that you're just like kind of painstakingly entering point by point and like all the enemies are just points and stuff. Wow. I feel like in retrospect, I might have had more fun just like making levels and learning how to make levels and learning how to use these utilities than I did with the game itself. Because like it was yeah so much fun just like the first time you were able to successfully create a square room and, and then see in the game. You're like, holy crap, it worked. I don't believe it. I made this. Um, did, did you and your friends... Um so tra trade the levels that you were making and play each other's? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think one of my one of my fondest memories is like, I think it must have been fifth grade. Because I remember talking to my friend Steve about like the love letter and stuff. And he was like, interesting, interesting. And then the next day he came in and he, he'd, he'd um, 
taking graph paper <laughs> and like really meticulously drawn out like this enormous doom level on this graph paper. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, can you make this? I remember it was surprisingly like ambitious. Oh, that's so sweet. I wasn't able to make that level because I remember like the hallways kind of intersected each other and Doom couldn't do that. There was like a lot of technical limitations. But even trading stuff at the time was such a nightmare because that was before yes. burnable CDs. So all we had with the freaking floppy disks, which yes. I think had like 1.44 megabytes. So I remember I made this really embarrassing like South Park mod that just replaced like the graphics with the South Park graphics. <laughs> and just to like give this to my friends who don't care about it. <laughs> like I had to I had to like run this utility utility to split it up onto like ten different floppy disks. And, you know, so then you bring like literally a stack of floppy disks to school. <laughs> and you're like, if you do all this, you can see Cartman in Doom. <laughs> and that's your that's your prize. <laughs> I guess when you're like 10, 11 years old, that's the kind of thing. You'll be dedicated enough just to see Carmen in, in Doom to, to load <laughs> yeah. all 10 discs. <laughs> Amazing. It's true. At the time, too, I was an enormous Star Wars fan. That was like with the original movies. And um, I remember spending a while trying to like make a Star Wars mod uh. where like the, the pistol in Doom was like an X-Wing. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't even like you're on foot. Like I've replaced all the textures with just like black. So it looked like you're in space and then the pistol's an X-Wing and it looks so bad. <laughs> wow. I can see what you're getting at though. You're so trying to imagine, bad. will it look like the X-Wing sort of flying around space, right? Is that what you were trying to do? Yeah. Yeah. It did not work <laughs> at all. <laughs> and it's really funny too, because I remember like killing myself in MS Paint or whatever I was, I didn't even know what I was using back then to like make these sprites and make the star sprites and then, you know, go into the level editor and make a sample level. And after all this work, then like you test it and it just looks so bad. <laughs> like, oh, oh, well, sometimes you get, sometimes you yeah, gotta try you stuff. You do have to try stuff. Yeah. So, so what did your, um, your dad do to buy this computer and all of this stuff in the early nineties? He didn't really work with computers. Um, my family actually had like a very blue collar job or my, um, my grandfather had this little business, um, that made like sheet metal boxes <laughs> and it was a really, I want to say factory that makes it sound large though. This is, it was like a small building that had like four people total working. It was like my grandfather, my grandmother, my uncle, my dad, and then like one other employee. <laughs> yeah. And it was like a family business that um, they had for quite a while until my grandparents died. Like not, maybe like a decade ago. Are you, it's um, v Vicito, is that a Italian surname? Yeah. That's just my grandfather's okay. name though. <laughs> I'm only a quarter Italian, but like since my grandfather, my dad's side is Vicito, it comes down. It's super Italian. Yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> and everyone, I think everyone assumes I'm like 100% Italian because of the name. But I think my dad was interested in computers just because like, I mean, he's super smart and it's always interested to him. And um, he used a bit with that work too, because they did have this big machine in the back that would like stamp the sheet metal, like a CNC machine, they call it. It just like, you feed a program in and it like stamps out a pattern into the sheet metal. So for that, like you had to have had, I think, or so he always had like, computers but it was just a hobby i don't know but he was used to using software i guess in his work yeah then i think i used it more for games than you know <laughs> like he ever did for anything yeah. else yeah yeah and um what 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 kind of uh what kind of kid were you at school were you i mean obviously it sounds like you were hanging out with some some fellow nerds with the graph paper and that yeah but were you also i mean you, you've gone on to make quite you know i suppose comedy games was that also a part of what you were interested in not really i was just a nerd in yeah. school not i'd like to say maybe not that nerdy <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe pretty damn nerdy it's hard to say i think it kind of waxed and waned like i was also like a band kid i feel like in middle school and high school like if you're in the band 
that just like dominated your social right. life. Mm-hmm. I don't know, in fifth grade at the heavy choose an instrument. So I chose a saxophone. And then I played the sax through like elementary school and middle school and high school. And I was in like concert band, jazz band and marching band and stuff. So really, I'd say like more of a band kid actually throughout yeah, yeah. school. You weren't tempted then to uh, to make a game about sax- saxophone champ or something? No, nah, that's lame. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the saxophone is very much a product of the 90s. It's, um, I don't know if it's Bill Clinton or what. but Lisa, Lisa Simpson. Yeah, yeah, that's true, of course. But Lisa wasn't cool, though, which is yeah. odd. But there was a brief time where the saxophone was, like, the cool mm-hmm. instrument. Yeah. I'm thinking of uh, you know, Lisa and, like, I think McDonald's even had this mascot called Mac Tonight, who was, like, a cool guy in a suit who would play the saxophone. Right. Maybe that's a false memory, though. <laughs> I kind of hate it now, actually. Oh, you do? <laughs> I still have my saxophone, but it's totally unplayable because it's just been, it's all dried out and I haven't touched it. Because as soon as I moved to new york and into an apartment it was just way too loud to play right yeah yeah it's definitely loud um and it's kind of funny actually one thing that's the saxophone is almost the opposite of a trombone in a way because um because the saxophone is really expensive and it has like a thousand valves and pads and stuff like it's covered in valves and pads and springs and everything whereas the trombone is like the opposite like it's very mechanically simple there's just like one long tube you blow into it and that that's kind of it you know and like the combination of how you control the air and how you move the slide is 100%. That's 100% how you control the tone, you know? That's it. But sorry, my cat's meowing a little bit. I'll try to get him to stop. That's good. A cat caveat. I like it. Yeah. As soon as I join any sort of Zoom meeting and he hears me talking, he just starts to walk around. Oh, sweet. What's your cat called? <laughs> Emilio. Emilio. Perfect. Also a quarter Italian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Why don't we uh, Why don't we come to your your second game, which I think came out the year after Doom? Can you tell us about it? Sure. I wrote down. Maybe it's cheating. It's kind of in the same line, but I put down click and play. But I forget where I bought this. I might have just bought it just like in a store. It's kind of amazing to think, but back in the day, you just like go to the stores and they would have PC games in like these enormous boxes. <laughs> and you would just like get whatever looked cool. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's another world. Yeah. Isn't it? It's, times have changed so much in terms of that stuff. But click and play also was like enormously formative because like before click and play, I was like making levels for a few games and also like. Around the time when I was playing Doom, my friends and I were trying to make like games in QBasic, which is like a really rudimentary programming language. And all we made were these horrible text adventure games because I wasn't smart enough to like figure out graphics in QBasic. But those were like miserable text adventures that were just like the puzzles made no sense. The writing was terrible. But Click and Play was like a very accessible program where you can ostensibly like make games from scratch just by like with this nice like visual interface. You could just like drag in images and you didn't have to write code. It was all like the strange like visual scripting language that kind of looked like an Excel grid. Do you ever use it? Are you familiar with it? No, I've, I looked it up and uh, cause I, I hadn't, I'd never used it, but it's, it was essentially, I suppose for younger listeners, I, a bit like Mario Maker or something like that. Like it was basically a game to make games with. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. And yeah, you'd code with a strange little interface where you'd like make an object like like an asteroid or something. And then you could just 
there's like this enormous grid of like everything that could happen. Like if asteroid goes off screen, if asteroid does this, if asteroid does that, like, and you just say like what you want to happen in each circumstance. But this is the first time when I was able to like make graphical games from scratch, I would say, which was like an enormously awesome feeling as a kid. Although ironically, like I didn't have the art shops or the tech skills to really like make my own sprites beyond just like a handful of sprites because it just takes a lot of time did it know? come with a palette of of things that you could just use oh yeah i came with like a whole bunch of like spaceships right. and other garbage and what, but i look pretty bad do you remember what, you, what the first thing you made was or what the best thing was that you made i got stuck on this line of asteroids games <laughs> because i feel like asteroids was easy to make which is kind of why i started with it because i just had to like make one sprite of a spaceship pointing one direction and then like click and play would automatically like rotate the sprite. So I don't need to have like run cycles or walk cycles or anything. Just it was really easy just to like Google pictures of asteroids and just like paint out space. Yeah. So actually it was I think that's part of the reason why. It was like it was actually pretty easy to make like a spacing that looked good. Yeah. The mm. bigger the game got in click and play, like the more unstable it got and it would start to crash and kind of fall apart. So I mm. made this like series of like five asteroids games with this kind of continual storyline that kind of went through all of them. With like all these NPCs, I really wish I had them somewhere. Because I remember there's some sort of storyline. And like NPCs would appear and talk to you with like little dialogue boxes at the bottom. And like you'd fight bosses. Uh -huh. You know, the bosses would like persist from one campaign to the next. I forgot the sounds story. great. Yeah, I really, it would be really fun to play him again. I bet it's extremely yeah. embarrassing, especially the writing. <laughs> and did, did, did this really set you up for... Because you, you, you started making games... Well, like you say, so indie games or web games, quite quite early early on in in your career, didn't you? I guess alongside your publishing job, is this really what? Is there a direct direct line from click and play to to those early games you were making? I was always making games, yeah. Even even like before computers, I remember like trying to make board games and stuff, and like bring them to school. They're all bad. Right. I think I should say that too. <laughs> everything <laughs> everything I've ever made has been bad <laughs> from from birth until present. Including these asteroid games, including like the Doom levels. I had mentioned, like, the only example I gave was like a South Park mod. Click and play was a big one because, again, it was like it really got me into the mindset that, you know, I could make something from scratch. Mm, and then yeah. they released a sequel called The Games Factory, which was actually very, very, very similar, but had just like a bunch of extra capabilities. Click and play, you're stuck to one screen. You couldn't scroll at all. Like, it had to be like all single screen stuff. But Games Factory let you scroll. And then they added like a, you can make bigger games and like the resolution is higher and stuff. So I'd say like I went from like click and play to Games Factory and then eventually learned Flash. Okay. And then from Flash yeah. to Unity. Nice. And that's kind of actually everything. <laughs> like that's that's everything I know. That's the full journey. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. counting like all the software like Photoshop and music software and stuff that lets you make all the you know, the actual content and assets and stuff. So you're, you, you've been playing in bands at school and, and have gone quite deep into that from the sound of things. And you were also learning to make games with click and play and then, and then flash. Did you, did you want to, what did you study at college and did you, were you planning to go straight into making games or was that just always a hobby? It was always a hobby. I think like, you know, over time I got slightly more serious about it, but I didn't really study in college. I went to college, not an odd time, but I wanted to study like web design specifically. I'm not sure why. <laughs> it's kind of like, like now I actually kind of hate it, but I think, you know, the web was kind of exploding at the time and it was, the web was different, yeah, you know. It was a good time to like enter that, that 
industry, right? Because it was all so exciting and new and all of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, now it's like, it's kind of a nightmare. It, it just changes too fast. Like web design is yeah. impossible because I don't know, especially with phones now, everything is mobile first. So like the, the kind of web design I studied isn't even really relevant anymore. Yeah. I went to Quinnipiac University in uh, Hamden, Connecticut, and they had this program called like interactive digital design. And it was a very weird program. We learned like a real mishmash of stuff. Like there was a bunch of web design and then a bunch of print design. We learned Flash. It's probably actually where I picked up Flash and like all the action script coding part of Flash. But then also in that program, for some reason, we learned a lot of 3D stuff too. So like I got some experience with like Maya. We even had like a little motion capture studio, which is kind of interesting. It was kind of like a jack of all tra trades program, which is um yeah. maybe not the best for careers, you know, but... It was kind of interesting to dip your toes in all those different things. But yeah, I hadn't really aspired to make games as a profession just because, I don't know, I think I'm kind of a realist to some degree and like, <laughs> they're, hard, they're hard to make. And I, I think I'm kind of acutely aware of my own like, limitations too. So I, I didn't really think it was possible for a very long time. And it's like speaking of being like, acutely aware of your limitations, I think that's actually part of the reason why I kind of ran with the Trombone Champ concept to begin with. With Trombone Champ, I wanted to make our first actual product product. <laughs> not like a free web game, not like a little demo, but actually something that we could like put on Steam. And so what really drew me to the concept was like how simple it seemed. Funny trombone sound, music game. Like all I needed are some songs and the trombone noises and I'm done. And that's it, you know. So that was like <laughs> part of the genesis was just the fact that it seemed achievable. Yeah, if you right, talk to right. game designers, a lot of people say like the biggest mistake people make when they try to pick up games is like, picking too large of a too large of a concept it's so easy to like try to do a project that's too large and then it's just completely un, unachievable yeah 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 a massive 3d fantasy world with full of orcs and all of that everybody wants to make that stuff i mean it sounds <laughs> awesome i would love to make that too it just where do you begin you know even just the basics yeah. of like getting a character to walk yeah have it feel good <laughs> like is yeah, super yeah. Hard. and that's before you even come to the question of how it was going to make this stand out from the teams that have a hundred million dollars to make that kind of stuff. Yes, as well. that's true. I don't know if Holy Wow has like a, it's our studios, Holy Wow Studios. I'm not sure if we have like an ethos, but the one thing I'm really stuck on is making sure that everything we make is unique. Mm. I mean, I don't want to bash any other devs too much, but like there are a lot of devs like making platformers that look and feel like a million other platformers. And sure, like they might have an interesting story and I'm sure they're fun and um, to play, but there's so many, you know, same yeah. issue with first person shooters. Like I see so many people on Twitter like, hey, I spent the weekend making this animation of someone reloading an AK-47. <laughs> and like, it looks yeah. good and it has like 10,000 likes, but it's like, dude, you know how many people in history have made an animation of someone reloading an AK-47 already, you know? Yeah, too many. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, in addition to like, what is this going to be? It's also kind of like, I feel it's a little tragic to like, ah, to spend like hours, like, you know, hours of your life on stuff that's been done. You know, like repeating work that others have done. And maybe I'm actually being a hypocrite because Trombone Champ is a lot like <laughs> Guitar Hero and other music games. <laughs> yeah, but it's subverting it, I suppose, in interesting ways. Whereas so much of the, I suppose we're talking about like military shooters, first person shooters. It's really like just finessing this very tiny creative space, isn't it? Infinitely. Yeah. Just trying to mine it for, for more and more value. Yeah, exactly. Rather, mm -hmm. than, rather than going, right, how can we... I mean, there are there are first-person shooters, absolutely. They've tried to subvert mm. it in interesting ways, but there's, there's much less of that, isn't there? Kind of, yeah. Um, okay, why don't we come to your, your third game on your perfect console? Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about it? You know, this one really stinks. <laughs> like, well, as soon as I got this prompt... For some reason, the words Return to Zork came to my mind. And I'm not even really sure why, <laughs> but I was just like, I, I knew this had to be on the list. I don't know why. 
trying to figure out why this came to me so strongly. Uh, it definitely did. It's an adventure game. Um, it's like a sequel to Zork. I don't know where it came in the series. I never even played the original Zork. It was really like this strange, maximalist, messy experience. And I think Return to Zork, you know what? Actually, as I'm speaking, I think it might be like the heralding of the CD-ROM era for me as a kid. Because Return to Zork, like, they, it was so maximalist and so ambitious and so messy. It had these full motion video cutscenes, which were horrible. They all looked so bad and they were acted so badly. I think they had like one of the actors from the Wonder Years play an orc or something. It's it's so <laughs> messy. And if you watch the videos online, they're so funny because they don't make any goddamn sense. The storyline is completely incomprehensible, but they have like actors talking to you throughout the entire process. Um, none of the puzzles make any sense. And I feel like that's kind of a formative thing. It's this really punishing, difficult adventure game full of puzzles that make no sense. Like none at all. Play it at home. Then go to school and be like, what do I do with this thing? You know, like, what the hell? Talking to my friends, like, what do I do with this thing over here? So so they were playing it too, and you were trying to get tips off them? Yeah, definitely. Right. I don't think this yeah. would be possible without talking to people. And uh, people yeah. talk about how, about how, like, the Dark Souls series has kind of brought this back. But kind of like this genre of games where, like, you're really not supposed to be able to do everything by yourself. You know, like, part of the fun is just being overwhelmed and having to like talk to people in real life to figure it out. There's a camera in the game and you can photograph every character you come across. And then there's puzzles where like you just have to show pictures of characters to other characters. Right. Oh gosh. Which means it's one of those adventure games where you need to like test every combination of everything. Yeah, until you find the the eccentric arcane solution that makes no sense until, yeah. until you get exactly. it. Exactly. Like one puzzle I remember is like you had to photograph the school teacher near the beginning who's like this old woman. And then you show the picture of the school teacher to like this little sailor who's like a young boy, then he like, <laughs> when you do that, he waxes poetic and he teaches you a knot, like a, like a knot, like, you know, for a rope yep. called a cow hitch. And then I think you need to use that like way later in the game. And it's also one of those games that's so messy that like you can easily get stuck. Like you can end up in situations where you just simply can't beat the game. Right. Because you didn't take the photograph of the teacher. <laughs> you can't go back and find her or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, I think you can get stuck on some island and like if you didn't have the cow hitch, you couldn't get off or something. And one of the most notorious puzzles here is like in the very, very first screen of the game, there's this little plant and you have a knife. And when you use the knife with the plant, you have like 15 options. It's like cut plan, you know, throw knife at plants. Stuff that doesn't make any sense even. But you have to dig up the plant. And if you chose cut plant, the plant would actually die. But then I think the game was unbeatable. <laughs> but you wouldn't <laughs> but you wouldn't figure that out for like 40 hours in. <laughs> so it's like a true madness. But also I just admire. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The, again, the ambition of it. They say that limitations breed creativity. And like, um, I think like, you know, when you have a technical limitation, 
there's like a few ways you can hit it. You can like approach it. Like if you think about Mario Brothers, like they obviously have, like they couldn't try to have Mario look like a real plumber, you know? So they use sprites to represent that. Like Return to Zork, like they didn't have the graphics to make things look realistic, but they tried anyways. <laughs> like, <laughs> they just like bumped against it and you're just like, whatever, we'll just like have, we'll do what we can with this technology. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It'll look bad. And so it's just like, it's just aesthetic, which I think doesn't exist that often anymore. Or just like... No, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very mid to late, late 90s. Command and Conquer. With, and there was some uh, PC Engine, the disk drives, whatever they called that, Super CD or something, that had those, again, you know, really badly filmed, pixely video interpretation. But it's so of that moment, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's um basically they're trying as hard as they can to achieve realism and just failing really badly. But at the same time, they're also like accomplishing this unique look and feel because of that, which is really hard to to recapture, I think. Yeah. I remember right, one thing with that game too, which blew my mind, was there was a brief time where um, PC games that came on CD, if you put the CD in like a CD player, track one would have all the game data. So you just hear like, if you just hear like this terrible static sound, but like the rest of the CD was reserved for actual like audio. So I remember Return to Zork was one of those where like, if you put in the CD player, tracks like two through 10 were the music from the game. And for some reason, I found that super cool that you could just like take a PC game and just put it in like a CD player in a car or whatever and listen to the music. <laughs> and again, with the ambition, like it was fully orchestrated. Like it actually had a pretty good soundtrack with they got some orchestra. Obviously, like Zork was a huge name. So I think they had some money to burn, you know, so they kind of went all out. So I'd say like just the music played a part of it too. And it's also just odd to have like fully orchestrated music on top of a game that looks and feels that bad. <laughs> like it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's part of what makes like the surrealism of the experience work. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. If you haven't seen it and who is listening should watch like a video playthrough of Return to Zork because it's just so weird. It's the weirdest stuff ever. Yeah. I think based on everything you've just told us, the people will definitely be searching that one out. I so. hope so. It's also, I should say too, it's pretty bad. <laughs> like it's yeah, like fully objectively, <laughs> like the puzzles are a nightmare. And the story makes no sense. It's just such a weird experience. Yeah, and it comes out, I suppose, in the, in the timeline of adventure games. This is before, um, it's a little before Monkey Island, isn't it? And uh, Broken Sword and all of yeah. those, which really refine the that that style of, of game, don't they? This is in the, the sort of Wild West before it's all settling down. And Yeah. I was torn between which adventure game to put here. Because um, I was also hugely into the LucasArts adventure games. I remember, I think they sold this like adventure pack that came with Day of the Tentacle and Fate of Atlantis and maybe even Sam and Max at the Road all in one box. Ironically, Fate of Atlantis predates Return to Zork by a year, apparently. I think Fate of Atlantis was oh, 92. It and it's a much right, better game. <laughs> but, but I don't know. <laughs> I just had to go with Return to Zork for some, some reason. So you... Um you work with, I, I think I mentioned in the introduction, you work with, with your wife, Jackie, yeah. who does some, some art, art stuff. Um, how, how is, how's that? How's, how's being in an, an indie game duo with your, with your partner? It's great. Yeah, we have like kind of an interesting team relationship, you could say. I will say we worked more, we, we split the work more 50-50 with like the smaller web games we made previously. Like a lot of the games we made before were like for one month game jams and stuff or for like these really short competitions. So like speed was of the essence, you know. So with those games, truly, like I was doing most of the, like all the coding and um, like all the music. And then I would have like a big list of stuff that like Jackie's making artwork for. <laughs> Trombone Champ is definitely more me. I mean, she contributed a bunch of artwork, but it's definitely more of like my personal project. I think part of the reason for that is because it was just like such a long process. Like with those Game Jam games, 
it's kind of fun, like, you know, as a couple to kind of like jump in there and work on a game and finish it in one month and it's done, you know, and it's, yeah. if it comes out nicely, that's fun too. But this was something I just, it was like this kind of slow and sometimes tedious process of trombone jam that took, you know, again, four years start to finish. And I was doing it like after work on nicer weekends, like during the pandemic. So that type of project is harder to do as like a two person team because like I'm already just like throwing away so much of my own personal time. <laughs> like I don't want to demand yeah. too much time of, you know, like my, my spouse. Since the game came out though, yeah, it's definitely much more of a 50 50 split on work. Because there's certainly, we figured out there's like enough work to do <laughs> to easily keep two people busy. Did she, did she ever get frustrated with how much time Trombone Champ was, was using up of, of your time, I suppose, before it came out? It's hard to say. <laughs> like not, not terribly <laughs> frustrated. You know, not terribly frustrated. I think I was almost more frustrated with myself sometimes, especially like I didn't, as I mentioned, like I didn't think it would actually be like a hit. You know, I thought I was hoping it would make some money, of course, but I didn't expect it to be a hit. So there's so many weekends where... You know, like I hadn't done much work that week on the game and it's like nice outside, but I'm like, oh, I really should work on this stupid trombone game for a while. You know, like the number of like Saturdays and like nice days where I just kind of sat in front of the computer. Yeah. They add up. It's a lot of time. I think the fact as well that you both worked on games before collaboratively, that that changes the dynamic a bit as well because you there's an understanding of, of what it takes to make a game of a certain size, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's so much work. It's kind of a, it kind of sucks sometimes. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, it's like moments of fun when like you just solve problems and make prototypes and see stuff that works. It kind of interspersed with like an infinite amount of just like toiling through really boring minutia and tasks and stuff. Yeah. With, with Trombone Champ, the funny thing is like that first prototype of gameplay probably took me just a weekend, honestly, like one weekend to have a trombone that you could like bend the pitch of and like notes would scroll by and that's it but then just the process of like making all of the gui like graphical user interface that surrounds every screen adding the storyline polishing everything bug fixing like that's really what takes a lot a lot of time and that's not the fun stuff (laughs) like that's no that's not the fun stuff no um okay why don't we come to your your fourth game which um I think it's yeah, it's it's from a similar era to the to the previous three as well. So there was something going on in your life at this time that was drawing you back to these games. But uh, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, I put down Warcraft One. first Warcraft game, Orcs and Humans, which I feel like was another formative game for me. You know, I should have looked at the year for this too, but this is probably around the same year. Like I, everything I picked is from approximately the same year, yeah. I think. This is from 94. Yeah. So they all 93, 94, I think so far. Well, I think one common thread between a lot of these games is playing them in a time where the internet didn't really exist as it does now. So there's kind of like the thrill of discovery because you just can't look stuff up at all. It's impossible. I mean, they had magazines and stuff, which would share. That was pretty much the only way to learn about these games was through these print magazines. But um, there's a lot of just like playing around and seeing what happens, mm. you know? But Warcraft yeah. 1 was like a real-time strategy game. There's like only two races, orcs and humans. It still looks and feels really good to this day, I think. Like the user interface is like squished into this little square, but the sprites are actually really clean and I feel like it actually still plays well. I remember playing this like not even knowing what all the what all the units you could build are, which is like the most basic part of a strategy game, but just like 
really going in a blind. Just like, what buildings can I build? Oh, I could build a barracks. I don't know what that is. You know, I don't even know what that <laughs> word means because I'm in fifth grade, <laughs> but I'll just do it. <laughs> but I would say this game was formative because I think this was the first game I ever got functioning online. So it was my first like multiplayer game I ever played over the internet, which I remember I tried to get Doom to work with my friends like a hundred times who couldn't get it to work. We had these dial-up modems and you had to like call each other simultaneously and run all these scripts and it never worked. But Warcraft 1 had this really funny online interface where um, from the main menu, you can like call someone's phone number. So like, that's what you do. Like, wow. I remember my, I played with my friend Steve and um, like putting in, putting in his phone number then his phone rings. And then like in Warcraft, you need to like push another button when your phone rings, then like it answers the phone and then you're connected. It was such an early online game. I think they didn't know how to deal with the basics of lobbies and stuff. Cause like, you know, it's a RTS, so you can choose a map and you can choose like game length and game speed. So the way Warcraft dealt with it was like, you just literally took turns making choices. And I remember like the magical experience of like connecting to my friend's computer for the first time and like seeing the mouse move around. Cause that's how it worked. Like you'd actually see the mouse move around as the other person made their choice. Right. He went to the map screen and chose a map. And then like he clicked okay. And then the way it worked was like, then it was my turn to make a choice. So I could just like choose another map and click okay if I was being an asshole, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think it's exactly what we did. I think we just like fought over the map selection for a while until one of us just gives up. And then like when both players click okay, then it works. But like, otherwise it's a strange back and forth thing. Yeah. But I remember like just how crazy and magical it felt just to like see stuff moving on screen and knowing that another person was controlling it even though they were in another house yeah and i remember right. just like the first time seeing like his enemy units cross the fog of war i'm like holy crap there's like a person controlling that it's steve controlling that you know and it was really exciting that is exciting yeah it's funny like all, all of your choices the with doom it's the sort of making the maps with your school friends and return to zorkish you know figuring things out sharing the tips and with warcraft it's the I guess the meta game of trying to actually make everyone's computers talk to each other across telephone lines. You know, there's a lot of stuff here that's outside of the game, but but around it that uh, that seems to be quite sticky for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, none of these games probably hold up that well now, <laughs> but but they're all like <laughs> that's basically what I chose. Are just games that have like these really memorable experiences from from my life. And Warcraft also was it was they, they're still making stuff, but like there was a time where Blizzard was just like on fire, you know, and like Warcraft was actually really killer for the time it was super good yeah, it was good that yeah. string of like warcraft 1 to warcraft 2 to starcraft to world of warcraft to, oh and diablo and diablo 2 like these guys were just it was nothing but gold like every single time it was ridiculous yeah but i remember like the thrill of playing this first online game and i forget who won i don't know and then like the game ended and then we like instantly called each other just to discuss the game <laughs> oh. which is fun <laughs> that's lovely and we got so into it they wanted to we wanted to like play a game of risk but have us like every single army move on the risk board. We would like play a game of Warcraft to decide home, <laughs> kind of turning it into this like, a game in a game, yeah, a game in a game. That's so also, cool. My friend Steve, who I was playing with, was like really big into Lord of the Rings. I hadn't read Lord of the Rings at the time. Or for him, like he was like super pumped about like orcs and humans being in a game and all like the Tolkien tie-in stuff. You know, I think with Warcraft two and three, like he made like a big Minas Tirith like custom level. And again, like brought it to school on the floppy disk and it was like, it's the battle of Minas Tirith. <laughs> Which to me, like, I don't even know that was the time, Amazing. you know. If uh, I feel like if um, Stranger Things had been set in the 90s, it could have been set around you and your friends. <laughs> All your antics here. Uh, yeah, that'd be really boring. <laughs> it's just a TV show of just kids sitting in closets trying to connect to each other's modems. <laughs> yeah. One Warcraft story, like we kind of stopped playing Warcraft because like I think we reached this kind of humorous plateau of skill 
If you chose the orcs, there was this unit, like you can make a necromancer unit. I forget what it was called, the conjurer, I think. And that unit could summon, you know, the Balrog from basically it's like this giant red demon. And if you were able to summon one of these demons, like this one unit could just wipe out an entire map by itself. It could just like one shot every single unit and then it could just walk to the enemy town and just like tear the entire town apart. I didn't even know that unit existed. And I remember Steve made one and sent it like to my base and just like won the entire game with a single unit. So then I learned how to make that unit. Then I made the unit next uh-huh. game. I remember I made two of them. <laughs> and then this kind of escalated into like every single game we play against each other would be nothing but like a line of 27 <laughs> necromancers summoning like 27 balrogs. <laughs> this, like, this screen is full of balrogs and like nothing else. It's like a, a metaphor for the escalation of human warfare, I think. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> They've got one nuclear weapon, we need two. Now we need three. Yeah, exactly. I remember just like the comedy of just having like this line of just like 27 necromancers and just like clicking them as fast as I could and clicking like the summon demon button. Like, <laughs> it's utterly ridiculous. Amazing. But the movies, I mean, the Lord of the Rings movies would have been a lot cooler if it was just like hundreds of balrogs <laughs> versus hundreds of balrogs. And just like... Two little kid kings <laughs> on thrones at either end. <laughs> Amazing. So you've uh, Steve's come up quite a lot in this conversation. Are you still buddies with him? Yeah, actually. Um, I think Steve and my friend Alex and my friend Chris were big like Steve, Alex, and Chris were a big like PC gaming buddies back in the day. Steve and Alex a little bit longer because we've been friends since like elementary school. And Chris right, was yeah. in a different school, so I met him in high school. All the Doom stuff, I like Alex kind of taught me how to do all that stuff. He was like the really smart computer kid. Like, I didn't know how to use DOS, but he, like, knew how to use DOS and stuff and taught me all that stuff. And actually, over the pandemic, I think, like, when the lockdowns first happened, we made, like, a Discord group. And now, yeah, we're still chatting, which is nice. Do you still play games together online ever? Not really. No. Not pushed in your uh, in your cupboards trying to get your connections working on <laughs> World of Warcraft. We talk about games a lot, but we don't really play them a lot. Things have changed. Alex is trying to get me to play um, Apex Legends constantly, which looks like fun. It does look like fun, but then like, like it's a hero shooter. So there's like 60 heroes and each hero has unique skills. I'm like, I can't learn all this shit. Like who's got, it's too much to learn. A lot of games have. uh, If it came to you on, uh, on 10 floppy disks, then maybe (laughs) you would, uh, (laughs) maybe you'd install it. I think at this point in my life, it's just like games with these intense learning curves, you know, I don't want to spend a full night installing a game and then like jump online and just, just, you know be the cause for my team losing <laughs> because like I just don't know what anything yeah, is you know right okay why don't we uh why don't we come to your your fifth and your your final game can you tell us about this one yeah it's again it's like almost the same year <laughs> yet again I put worms 2 slash worms Firstly, this was the first game I think I ever downloaded from the internet. Um, I remember for Worms, I somehow got the Worms demo somewhere for Worms 1. I never had the full game. But then Worms 2, they released a demo online, and I remember it was 20 megabytes, which nowadays would take like a fraction of a second to download. But it was like an eight-hour odyssey for me to download this 20, 20 megabyte demo back in the day. I remember like it was pissing off my parents because like I had to tell them I was like you can't use the phone from like <laughs> you 
you can't use the phone for the next eight hours because you need to download this 20 megabyte demo. And like, I think like my mom picked up the phone halfway through and just like, which just disconnected the internet and just, you know, destroyed the oh, download. Man. So you raged at your mom about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember just downloading this demo and then installing it. And it was like, it was wild actually when it worked. I said, holy crap, I got like a 20 megabyte demo from the internet. You yeah. know? I think that was the first thing I ever downloaded. And it was also one of the first things I ever purchased from the internet period, which also was kind of funny. I don't I know Team 17 is like a, a British company. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But I don't know if this came from the UK and that's why it was hard to find. But I remember ordering, like I had to order Worms 2 online, like the physical box. Right. And okay. I remember like that was one of the first things that like our household had bought online period. Uh-huh. And so just like putting your credit card number online was very sketchy at the time. You know, people are like, yeah, right. is this a good idea, you know? Yeah. And I think nowadays we're used to like two days delivery, but I think it took like a month to come or maybe longer. You think it was, it was like sent this, from the UK? It might have been in retrospect. I don't know. But I remember it took a long ass time to come. <laughs> yeah, it probably was. And it was thrilling. Yeah. And that game too, again, like it came in this enormous box. The box had all the beautiful artwork. And even the box had like two levels of artwork because like the outside had worms. And then there was like this window in the artwork with like the cellophane window you could see through and there's like a second level of artwork behind it just kind of thrilling but really the thing about worms is just the fact that like it had that incredible couch co-op they call it now where like you can play like eight player multiplayer games in one room yeah. so this is kind of like an enormous thing for my friends and i because you know we could just go to each other's houses and you don't need to like all the online gaming i've been discussing like barely worked it was kind of a nightmare yeah but with this like, you're just sitting around a computer just taking turns almost like a board game right right and we just yeah. played so much of this it was ridiculous you could name your um so it's uh, for anyone who hasn't played it, it, you're sort of, it's viewed sideways on and you do control a literally a little soldier worm who fires various things at the other worms and you take turns, like you say. But you could name your worm after yourself or after whatever, couldn't you? And uh, yeah, and take shots. So it made it all the more personal. More than that, I think you had a team of like eight worms and you could name each one and you could name the team too. Right. So that was just like... The amount of mental effort, <laughs> the amount of the amount of mental energy I put into like <laughs> the funniest or best worms team name, you know, I spent way too much time on that. Yeah, and it was just like we'd name our worms after each other, so then it was fun to like see them die <laughs> or like fall in the water yeah. or whatever. They, when I I used to play uh, worms with a, I had a friend called Alex as well. We would we would when we were kids we would play worms, and we would name the teams like. Each of our teams was a different option for what we were going to do that night. Oh. And then whichever, like, team won, that was what we would then go on and do. So it's like, <laughs> eat pizza versus eat chicken wings. Yeah, it was like, exactly, really mundane stuff. Like, go <laughs> yeah. to the park or go to the other park. It'd be funny if it wasn't mundane, <laughs> yeah, you know. Stuff like that. But. It, was like, <laughs> yeah. it was like, it was like, team do cocaine versus team steal a car. <laughs> You're playing worms to decide. Maybe in America, not uh, not in South London at that time. <laughs> and I, th- I think the childhood I'm describing didn't really align with that either. We we're so boring. <laughs> we were so straight laced. Like again, like if 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 you and your friends are around a PC, like an old PC playing worms, you're probably not getting into much trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I feel like the, just the naming of the worms was like the most genius move. Without the name, yeah, so the game would just have half the appeal it does. And also it has like really fun emergent gameplay. <laughs> like now I know the word emergent gameplay. As a kid, I was just, I didn't, you know, I wouldn't know how to articulate it, but had this really funny moments where just like, you know, one worm would just get launched sky high and then like hit another worm and create this like chain, re- chain reaction you wouldn't expect. And like really interesting fun things would happen. So even if you're just like watching, there's always like fun stuff to observe, you know, it was, yeah. it was great. Yeah, they had like an explosive sheep or something, didn't they, that would then 
and little bits would bounce off and then it caused a chain reaction, wouldn't it, of explosions and stuff like that. I had way too many weapons. Like nowadays, actually, like, you know, I try to get Jackie to play it a little bit, but I grew up with it, so I know all these weapons. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like, right. you select a worm, you right click, and this menu of like 115 weapons opens. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's too many. Like, you know, looking at it objectively with fresh eyes, I'm like, why are there so many weapons? It's ridiculous. Yeah. And when, I, when I'm trying to teach Jackie, I'm like, okay, ignore all of these. <laughs> like, here are the three good weapons, yeah. you know? Yeah, a little over-engineered, maybe. Yeah. But this game also had, like, really fun customization, too. I think with Worms 2, not only could you, like, you name the worms, um, I think you could make your own sound packs because there were a bunch of different voice packs that came with the game. But then you could also just, like, there came with this little utility where you could just upload little sound effects and make your own, like, voice packs that the worms would then, you know, speak verbally. Oh, that's so cool. And that, too, <laughs> just, like, tickled me in just the right way, you know? It was like, oh, I have to make... I think I did something really lame and like recorded my own voice, <laughs> which is like my own prepubescent voice, which is the lamest possible choice. But no, but what else are you going to do? That's exactly what you would do, isn't it? Just yeah. like give a, give you <laughs> redo all the sound effects yourself using your voice at 14 or whatever. That was like, I think before puberty too. And my voice was really high. Uh-huh. I had like a little baby voice. I think like I discovered those sounds like three years later. And I was like, oh my God, my voice is so high. <laughs> it was like two octaves higher than... My adult voice. You should put those in a little uh, trombone champ DLC or something, I reckon. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I think those are long gone. Thank God. <laughs> There's some things I wish I still had. Like, I wish I had those Asteroid games. I wish I had some of those Doom mods. But then, like, the Worms 2 sound pack, I'm glad that's gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> I hope it's never found. It's probably long gone. Nice. Well, brilliant. Dan, it's been so good to chat you in. Thank you for your choices. Let's just go through them. We've got uh, Doom, Click and Play, Return to Zork. Warcraft 1 and Worms 2 slash Worms Armageddon. How are you feeling about that? I feel great about it. I feel like if you gave this to someone today, they would get no enjoyment out of it at all. <laughs> it's like a nightmare yeah. box. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, we also need to give it a give it a brand name to market it to the world. What should we, what should we call it? You know, I think I was thinking of the name, the Beige 46, <laughs> yeah. although I kind of like Nightmare Box as well. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, Nightmare Box is good. Okay. I like Beige 46 because like, all these games harken back to that time when PCs were these like disgusting beige bricks. Oh, of course. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. The 486 was like the processor. That was like the big yeah. one, I think. I, I, I yeah. miss the days when PCs had like really easy to understand, I don't know, power. Where like Business. first there's a 386, and then there's the 486. You're like, oh, that's better. <laughs> like, right, right, right. It's a bigger number, yeah. so it's clearly better. Yeah. Yeah. They stopped that with the, we got the Xbox 360 and then they just went back to the Xbox One and everyone got confused and gave up. So. Yeah, even computer chips, like my the Mac I'm using as like an M1 chip. Right, yeah, yeah. That's a very low number, one, you know? Yeah. They should yeah. up that number to something They've higher. reset it, yeah. <laughs> to make it seem, to make it seem higher. Okay, so we've got the Beige 46. It's going to have to have uh, both a CD player so that you can listen to Return to Zork soundtrack on your CD player. Sounds good. And also a floppy disk drive so that you can export your Cartman mod pack for Doom. Exactly, yeah. And adjusted for inflation, it should probably cost like $10,000. Because <laughs> I'm sure this stuff was crazy expensive, actually, in retrospect. Yeah, yeah you might do. You might have to take this to Kickstarter and you'll make <laughs> yeah. about five sales, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, they might be optimistic, actually. Yeah. Okay, well, just before I let you go, I'm um I yeah, I was just interested because you you know that I had that quote right at the start in the in the um in the intro where you were saying why why you don't know there's 
there aren't more comedy games because yeah. you know there is so much scope for comedy games. It seems like Trombone Champ was a, a bit of a joke that got out of hand in some ways. So yeah, I, why, why do you think there aren't more more funny games? And what could perhaps developers listening to this who are interested in that space do to to sort of what areas are there to explore do you think it's a really tough question it really is i think it comes down to a lot of factors you know um like there's not many comedy games but there's not much comedy anything maybe actually i guess the uk's uk might be different but like even in america we have this notorious problem where they're like not even making comedy movies anymore right like everyone talks about this like the comedy is essentially dead i think comedy is really hard it's just like the harder you try at comedy the less funny it is so i think it's difficult i think also people large corporations probably don't want to gamble on comedy because comedy doesn't really sell you know like i said like comedy movies aren't selling so like these major games like yeah they'll throw jokes in there but it's really very risky to go all in on comedy Mm -hmm. and then indie devs i'd say are like very passionate for the most part and comedy is a very small and frivolous thing sometimes like a trombone champ does feel extremely frivolous you know it's like this stupid little concept of a trombone game with lots of fart jokes is very small you know yeah many indie games go the other way don't they and try and do the most serious uh the most serious subject matter going yeah. as well, a way to sort of feel more more weight yeah it, it, even if not the most serious and like intense like as difficult as possible or as fast as possible everyone wants to make a great work of art you know I, i'm i've i'm victim of the same thing like i would love to make like a heartbreaking game that's genius and has like an amazing storyline that makes everyone cry and you know like undertale you know like everyone sees games like undertale and they're like ooh, the, there's so much going on with the characters and the themes and it's so i think a lot of indie devs aspire to those heights and which kind of is antithetical to comedy in a way too comedy has to be small to some degree and stupid like i feel like you know that's why stand-up comedy works it's just like it's one person with a microphone you know, like in a basement, <laughs> like telling jokes. It's about committing to something really small and I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a, like, I don't have a background in comedy at all, but like, I'm really interested not in sure. it. So it's, it's, yeah, yeah, me too. And it's uh, often, it's a complaint that they often hear in movie and uh, film and TV award shows, don't they? That often it's, uh, you know, tragedies or dramas that get uh, the accolades and, and sitcoms don't. But, um, you know, I, I think Trombone Champ is a, is a work of, genius and it is <laughs> it's a bit much thanks. brilliant and it has brought so much joy to so many people and that is uh that is not to be sniffed at <laughs> yeah thank you maybe genius might be a strong word <laughs> but um <laughs> but i mean that's i am very happy with it even though like it's i mean it's, it's very stressful having a game that people are playing and it's a lot of work you know but at the same time i'm just happy that people are getting enjoyment out of it like it was very fun seeing people streaming it and laughing because that's really just the whole goal. Like the whole goal is just to make people laugh. I will say that, you know, I was confident it was funny at the beginning, <laughs> you know, but then like when you hit like year three of working on it, it's <laughs> like it's not funny anymore. I'm sitting there like, oh man, because I'd like written most of the material, quote unquote, like, you know, in the first probably two years. So eventually I'm just like, oh man, like you lose that confidence that it actually is funny. So I'm glad that people enjoy it. Yeah, it did. Uh, it did launch still with its uh, funniness intact i think it's safe to say so <laughs> it, it does uh, work as a legitimate game too besides from the comedy but i think like it's it's comedy first you know dan thank you so much it's been so good to chat to you and to, to hear your choices as well thank you for sharing them with us i appreciate yeah it. thanks thanks for having me here it's it's, it's been fun talking
Thank you so much to my guest, Dan Vaquito, one of the co-owners of Holy Wow Studios and the co-creator with his wife, Jackie, of the game Trombone Champ. Really a smash a viral hit last year. If you're yet to play it, I urge you to uh, download it. It's on Steam now, available for both PC and Mac. It's a lot of fun, really good time to be had. Good party game as well, I think, because... Everyone sort of understands exactly what you have to do in the game straight away. So people who don't typically care about video games uh, can get right into that straight away. I think it's interesting that Dan, we, we didn't get into this too much, but uh, Dan, as he said right at the start of that conversation, spent 15 years working at uh, at a book publisher. He was at Penguin Random House uh, working as a senior interactive designer and then later the director of application design so quite rare i think from someone to come from the publishing industry and to move into the video game industry and indie game making so very interesting journey there indeed i'm excited certainly to see what dan and jackie come up with next Uh, you can keep an eye out on what their current and future projects are by visiting uh, their website uh, for their studio holy wow so do that go and uh, check out what they're up to. It's uh, well worth following. Ones to watch, I think. Particularly, you know, exciting that Dan is interested in putting work into the world that does something a bit different, uh, even if it's riffing on established forms or subverting them. That seems to be a real focus for, for the studio, which is always a good thing, I think. You can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Thank you for those who continue to do so, suggesting guests and things like that. Currently, throughout the month of April 2023, I'm doing two episodes a week. Uh, That might be too many for some of you, or it might be too few for others. But we had a bit of a backlog of uh, some wonderful episodes, and I was eager to get them into the world rather than just uh, drip feeding them. So we're going to have a bit of a flurry through this month. Uh, And then as we move probably into May, we'll go back to just one a week um, unless uh, something something changes. But um, yeah, please do continue to suggest guests as we as we, you know, build build this podcast. Very gratifying to see that recently Time Out London declared My Perfect Console to be their third most recommended podcast for 2023. Thank you to that support. Uh, And if you found us through Time Out, then welcome. Uh, You can go back and listen to previous guests and interviews we've got some really good chats there uh, with some fascinating people and of course lots more to come in the weeks ahead you can follow me at simon parkin on twitter and you can follow the podcast as well at my perfect console with the o's removed from console if you would like to support the podcast financially then head along to acast plus where you can become an early access supporter and for just £3, $3, €3 a month, you will get your episodes 24 hours before the general public and ad-free. Uh, it's also just a great way to, you know, uh, help support these endeavours. It does take a really, really long time to make these episodes and to, you know, bring it all together. It's really gratifying, uh, but also, you know, looking for ways to help, I suppose, keep it sustainable uh, for the months and hopefully years to come. Okay, we will be back again in a few days uh, with a new guest with their five games and with one more perfect console. Until then, have a great week. Bye.
Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.